0: Alright, let's refresh our memory of what we covered last week because we're actually going to start in part of that to conclude it and continue on today with the homily and the creed. Last week, we started with the Gloria but reminded ourselves that just before the Gloria, what have we done? We've done the Kyrie Eleison. We have cried out for mercy knowing our need for mercy because of how we have not completed the law by the grace of Jesus Christ, we have failed. We are in need always of mercy, and there never will be a time where we're not in need of mercy. But there's another part of that mercy that we cry out to in the Kyrie that we talked about. And just like Father Michael Kaiser pointed out in his book, Offering the Lamb, every time someone would come to Christ, or at least so many times people would come to Christ for healing, that was the very thing they asked for. They would come with a physical issue, Lord have mercy, is what they would say. And so when we cry out for mercy, it's mercy to cover our sins, but it's also mercy to heal us of those things that are in us that cause the continuation of sin that is detrimental to our soul and the souls around us. And in those same moments of the Kyrie, we remember... This is exactly what God wants to give us by His grace in those moments in the Mass. So having called out for mercy and having received it, we now go to the great hymn of praise, because what would be better, having received undeserved mercy, than to cry out in praise for what God has given. And so we sing the Gloria, glory be to God on high. And after the Gloria, we move to the Collect prayers of the day. Remember those colic prayers? Those prayers in every Mass designed to collect us together in one spirit for the remembrance of that particular day. So when the priest prays the colics, we all pray the colics together in our minds and our hearts with that non-active participation. Immediately following the, the uh, colics, We now move to what is called the Liturgy of the Word. That whole section consists of the reading of the epistle, the procession, and the reading of the gospel, and the homily. All of them. Now, we talked about the epistle reading. We talked about the fact that when Scripture is read, I don't care whether it's in vespers, matins, or mass, or any prayer service of those nature, When you hear Scripture read, it is not hearing someone appointed reading a book. When we hear Holy Scripture read, we are to tune ourselves into the very voice of God who desires and wills to speak to us, correct us, heal us, move us towards Him by the hearing of His voice instructing each one of us. And I'm always amazed whether it's the epistle or the gospel or the homily, I will hear people give me testimony of what they received and two different people can be uniquely different through the same reading, through the same homily and so on. Why? Because our God knows where each one of His living stones always are in life. And through the expression of His Word by epistle, gospel, and homily, He comes to us in those moments. And so we need to avail ourselves when we hear the words read to listen to Him and ask Him, what are you saying to me today? How would you instruct me today? I'm listening. Okay? Now, We talked about the gospel procession. We talked about the picture of the incarnation that it is. Remember we talked about the gospel where it comes from. It comes from on high. It comes from the altar. And where does it go? It comes into the very midst of the people. And this is exactly what happened in the incarnation of Christ. God. "...from His throne on high, became man and dwelt among us." When you see that procession come, you remember this is Christ coming even today to dwell among us. And again, we have all those wonderful sacramentals, if you will, the two candles, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, the cross, the incense, the gospel book itself... Christ is in our midst. Christ has come to dwell among us and bring His gospel to us, meeting us where we are. But one of the things that I didn't tell you, and I thought about this this week when I was preparing I didn't tell you how the deacon, or whoever happens to be reading the gospel that day, prepares to read the gospel. I don't know if you've noticed, but when the deacon goes, or I played the role of the deacon today, he goes to the credence table, he gets the gospel book, he goes down, and he bows, proceeds up, and then he prepares himself with prayer, even for the reading of the gospel. Here's the prayer, and now I'm going to tell you where it comes from, because you need to see this. The deacon prays, Cleanse my heart and my lips, O Almighty God, who didst purge the lips of the prophet Isaiah with a live coal, and of thy gracious mercy, vouchsafe so to purify me, that I may worthily proclaim his holy gospel through Christ our Lord. He asks for cleansing, but he asks for cleansing by purging. Where this comes from is one of the most beautiful passages in Holy Scripture, Isaiah chapter 6. And I want to read that to you. Because you have to know the story, to know, and the vision that Isaiah received, to know the very prayer that the reader of the gospel is praying over himself on behalf of himself and on behalf of all. Isaiah chapter 6, this is verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple, and, it's, and above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and two with two He covered His face, two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one cried to, the, uh, to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. And I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, Lord send me. You get the picture. Isaiah is given a vision where he is whisked right in front of the very throne of God. He sees God in all of His holiness, and in light of the holiness of God, illuminated is all the ways that he's not like that. And so he cries out rightly, Woe is me, I'm undone. Remember the collect of purity? My heart is bare open here, Lord. Right? Woe to me, I'm undone. But God in his faithfulness doesn't leave him there suffering. He has the angel take the coal, touch the lips, cleanse Isaiah, bringing him to himself, And only after the cleansing, when God asks, who shall I send? Now Isaiah is ready to be the very prophet, the voice of God to God's people. So the deacon prays for this to happen to him. So that he might be so cleansed by the touch of God... That when he goes forth in that procession and reads the Holy Gospel, he will become that prophetic mouthpiece of Jesus Christ himself, where we don't hear the words of a man trying to chant something, but Jesus Christ, who is in our midst, voices his words for the salvation of all. Isn't that incredible? And that is what is prayed by the deacon or whoever's filling that role in the Mass. Then the deacon takes the gospel book and he kneels before the celebrant priest and he says, Bid, sir, a blessing. He asks for a blessing. And the priest blesses him saying, The Lord be in thy heart and on thy lips that thou mayest worthily and rightly proclaim His gospel in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Word of God, Jesus Christ, now comes from the tabernacle, from the throne in heaven, and comes And teaches us. If we have ears to hear. Isn't that what Christ said? For you have ears to hear, let him hear. The question is, are we giving ears to hear? Are we being that attentive in our lives in those moments with faith to believe Christ is in our midst? I listen to Him. And I evolve and are transformed by those very words. Look, let me tell you something. If the Word of God in the very beginning spoke creation into existence by His Word, do you not think that His very spoken Word can transform your souls, heal you, bring redemption into your life, restore peace where there's chaos? And we have that opportunity availed to us in the reading of Holy Scripture and in the Gospel. Pray to prepare yourselves to receive. Be attentive. Be attentive and see what God might do. Yes? Um, This is something I've heard mentioned where we have the lessons printed in the bulletin, but the lessons are not designed to be read as the person's reading. We should actually stand and listen. Take the bulletin home, read the lessons later, reflect on them, but... But don't read along. It's actually designed to be heard, not read along. And that's a hard thing because let me tell you something. There are two two different types of people. My wife and I present to you these two types of people. (laughs) I am of the person that tends more easily to be auditory. Okay? I, I get that. My wife, it's not that she's not auditory but she grasps more from the hearing if it's in front of her too. But what Peter is saying is exactly right. Make every effort to experience as if Christ is talking to you. Right? I'm not going to say throw the bulletin out, but try to. And see how you do. You know, if need be, if you receive more and hear Him better in that way, fine. But make that effort. That's a very good point. So, we come to the homily. Now I'm going to tell you right now, and I believe if they're honest, anyone who is in a position of doing a homily in a sermon would, would profess the same truth. The homily with a very reverent fear, not a dumb fear, sometimes scares the life out of me because of what I know is going on in the Mass at that moment. Because just like the deacon prays for the cleansing to be the mouthpiece of God in the reading of the Gospel, those that do the homily and the sermon are the very same. But they're in the charge of hearing God and what He wants to teach for that day and uniting God to the people through the spoken word of the homily. And if If somebody doesn't have any fear, I'll never let them preach in this church. Because they don't get it. They don't get what's going on. Let me sum up for you. This is based on a number of teachings from different people and different fathers and so on. If I could, I want to sum up the purpose of the homily. And I said it a little bit right there, but follow me on this. The purpose of the homily in the liturgy is this. Through the orthodox interpretation of both Holy Scripture and tradition. For the two cannot be separated. It's not one over the other. They are interwoven as a fabric. They exist together. You can't have one without the other. So through the orthodox interpretation of both Holy Scripture and Holy Tradition, which is the teaching, how, what those things mean, God is revealed to us... God comes to us and our lives are moved toward Him that we might by grace be transformed to fulfill the law as summed up by Christ. Love God and with the love of God, love one another. You can sum up the entire existence of the homily in the fact that by the spoken word, God and man meet and we are transformed and graced to better be about the likeness of Christ. Make sense? You with me on that? Okay. If you understand that the homily is a meeting of God and man that is just as sacramental a moment as everything else we do in Mass. God, through the stuff of earth, incense, fire, Hmm? water, the hearing of the Word bowing, genuflecting, signing ourselves with the cross. Through all this physical stuff, God meets us. It is no different than in the homily. The one who delivers the homily is just a vessel. And this is why the person, their personality, the style that they do it with, whether they stand at the pulpit or stand in the middle, whether they go out to the people as I've seen people do and come back in orthodox churches, is irrelevant because that person is the vessel. We must get our eyes off the person. And see through like an icon in the homily, Lord, what are you teaching me? What are you after here? What do you want to share with me about yourself? Let me give you, I want to give you a little history, very briefly of the homily in the church. And this is in understanding the Orthodox liturgy written by Father Mikhail Najim. And here in the history, he says, in the history of God's people, Old Covenant and so on, there would be the authoritative teaching of the law by the priest, the rabbi, and so on. The Levitical priesthood. The rabbi was believed to have, and indeed did have, the authority to teach the law, and the authority to safeguard the law in its interpretation of how it ought to be lived. Now this man, the priest, the rabbi, would sit in a particular seat of the synagogue or the temple, and that seat was known as the seat of Moses. And the reason it was known as the seat of Moses, remember, who got the law in the first place? God gave it to Moses, but then what did Moses do with it? He brought the law to the people and he read the law and at times judged based on the law in the stead of God, right? So the rabbi would sit in the seat of Moses. Now in the early church, before the church had grown, before the church had really started flinging out beyond where it was, there was no priesthood. In the very beginnings of the church, there were the bishops and then there were deacons. Okay? Practicality later on demanded that the priest in the wisdom of God make priests to fill his spot. To stand in his stead. But guess what? In the early church, the bishop presided from what is known as the cathedra. And the word cathedra is the Greek word for seat. And it was treated in the same way of the Old Covenant, the seat of Moses. In other words, the bishop would preach from the seat, the cathedra, and he would both preach the truth of Christ as the fulfillment of the law, and from that same seat, the cathedra, he would protect from heresy. Protect from false teachings. By the way, this is the reason that you have wherever the bishop presides, that church is called a what? Cathedral. Because it's based on the word, the Greek word meaning seat, that seat of authority. Now, as the church would grow and spread through the known world, like I said, the bishops instituted the preachhood in, priesthood in the church. Hey, preachhood. <laughs> that works. The priesthood in the church. And these were men, like I said, that served in the stead of the bishop. Because the bishop couldn't get to all the parishes. The church had outgrown the reach of the bishop. Okay? So where the priest serves, he serves as, instead, with the authority given over the people. For the same reason: to preach the truth and to preserve the preaching of the truth and protect from false teachings. Now the priest may appoint others to do so in a parish just like we do today. Because we have a couple of priests, we have a couple of subdeacons that priest. And now Deacon Ken will get back into that very soon. So that's a little bit of history over the development of the homily in the church and that authority that's there. Again, when I even think about that, it causes me to quake in my boots a little bit. Do you understand the calling on the priest, on the bishop? So it's to be done with much prayer, much study, preparation, the study of the fathers, the study of the liturgy itself, looking at, you know, because remember this, even though most homilies center around the gospel or the epistle, it doesn't have to be. Most times it does. This is the tea, this, what does God want to bring to this parish this day? That's the bottom line. And what does he want to bring to the priest who's preaching? Because it comes there first, I guarantee you, for the priest to deal with things. But we also look at the, the various parts of the Mass, the introit. You've heard me preach a homily based on the introit. You know, many of us have preached on the remembrance of the day. You know, so the bottom line is we're charged with praying and receiving and delivering what God has to offer for the healing of us all, okay? Now, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says something very interesting. It says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold to the traditions, the teachings, which you were taught whether by word or epistle. Whether by word or epistle. Now we know that Paul's epistles, Peter's writings, you know, the Gospels, they were all beginning to circulate in the early church. okay And they were indeed read. So Paul is instructing all of the churches at that point that when you receive these epistles, these letters, these Gospels, follow them. Follow those teachings. But he says something else. Also what you receive by our word. Now I want you to think about something. Paul was in Corinth, I believe, for a year and a half. Afterwards, he wrote two letters because when he left, they were getting all uppity again, right? So he had corrections to make. So he wrote those letters. What did he teach for a year and a half? Because he says, and it's in Holy Scripture... That we are to hold to those things. And that's where you see scripture and tradition in that one verse. Hold fast to what's taught and the epistles. And they never separate one another. And they never go against one another. And that's from St. Paul. And that is what... The homily is for us. The ongoing apostolic instruction through the church incarnationally by the Holy Spirit so that all of our souls receive Him, receive His teaching, and we can turn our lives to that so that chaos in our life continues to reel back and peace expands. And we're changed, and so is our experience with God and with one another. Okay? Pray even before and during the sermon. Same thing as when you prepare to hear the spoken word through the reading of Holy Scripture. Ask Him to teach you. And He, with pleasure, will do so. Because He wants you to know Him. Hmm? And he He wants to draw you near Himself. Now, the homily being done. You know what? Let me say one more thing because I do like to bring in what we do with this outside of Mass. Scriptures, the liturgy of the Word. What do we do with this outside of Mass? We're given it in Mass sacramentally. Do you not think that our Lord wants to teach you in your own homes? Then the next question is how often are you reading Holy Scripture? Following the daily readings and asking God in the same way to come and change your soul and instruct you? Let me give you an easy way to begin going about that. It's a very easy discipline. And it's on our website. If we don't still email it out, I'll start doing it again. We have daily Bible readings put together by the church every month, every year. And that's found on our website under the calendars page. And you'll see daily Bible readings. You can open it up and print it out for the whole month if you want. It's there. And what you have is two readings in the morning and two readings in the evening. Short passages, not long stuff. And it's to be done in conjunction with your prayer in the home. As you pray... Read these Scriptures asking God to reveal Himself. What have I said many times that the church fathers teach us over and over again? You hear so many of them say it. To fail to know Holy Scripture is to fail to know Christ. We don't need to be Scripture literate for intellectual purposes. Reading Holy Scripture isn't about that. Reading Holy Scripture is about being behind the icon of the page through which Jesus Christ presents Himself and changes your life in His image. Consider making that, if you're not already, consider making that a profound discipline on a daily basis and watch what God shows you. And I look forward to hearing about it. So that concludes the liturgy of the Word. But it also concludes something else. You may have noticed in the Mass booklets, and it's there in the ones in the church as well, that there's a point at the beginning, it says the Mass of the Catechumens, and then there's a page at the top, it says the Mass of the Faithful. Alright, as soon as the homily is done and concluded, that ends the Mass of the Catechumens. The reason that's in there is because in the early church... Those who were catechumens after the homily and before the creed would leave the church. Okay? They would leave the church to go directly to their catechumen spiritual, how do I live as Jesus Christ in his kingdom teachings? Preparing them for their baptism, preparing them to be chrismated, right? That's what would happen. In fact, in the Eastern liturgies, even today, the deacon, after the homily, and after that certain point, announces, the doors, the doors, in wisdom let us attend. He chants that. And then they go right into the creed. It's just a remembrance that there was a time where the catechumens would leave at that point. Okay? Yes, Peter. Father, it's also a remembrance, the doors, the doors, they would be closed because at that point, there was nothing to convict you of being a Christian. But once you stand and in public say, I believe in one God, then you could be arrested for being a Christian. And so they wanted to make sure only the faithful remain. Exactly. Okay. While they were under persecution. Yes. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so that's what happens. So we have come now in the Mass to the Liturgy of the Faithful. The Mass of the Faithful. Okay? And it begins with that very proclamation, the Creed. Father Michael Kaiser writes in his book, Offering the Lamb, that the creed is the summation of the teaching that the church has received and acceptance of which is the basis for claiming to belong to the church. In other words, in the saying of the creed, when we say the creed together in unity, not only are we voicing the handed down, passed on faith of the church... But we are actively proclaiming, this I believe. This is where I stake my life. And it is in this faith that I will be made one with Jesus Christ and find salvation. That's why we join together in the creed. Now this is the faith, but I'm going to tell you right now. Forever we will read the creed and there will always be mystery in it. Don't think we can figure this thing out. When you look at the creed, you try to explain all this. Sometimes when we do the creed, not every time, but sometimes when we do the creed, I will get a new revelation of what this particular part means. God even meets us and instructs us when we proclaim the faith handed down so that we grow into the mystery of God, into the mystery of our faith. Okay? And we need to understand that. A little history of the creed real quick, and then we'll go into it. The church, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, officially proclaimed the true faith of the church as it dealt with heresies during the first two ecumenical councils. You've heard this over and over again. The reason we have the great expressions of the faith is because we had the great expressions of false teachings. Which forced the church to mouth the truth and overcome the lie. You see? And so in the first two ecumenical councils, the Council of Chalcedon, the Council of Nicaea, these heresies in particular centered around the nature of Jesus Christ. Okay? They centered around the nature of Jesus Christ. Some claimed that He was not fully human, just fully divine. And there were those who claimed he was fully human, but did not maintain his true and full divinity. It went both ways. And I think I said something wrong about the councils. What that's not the first and second. That's my fault. I see it was first. Constantinople was the second. First. Right. Thank you. Thank you. But the these the creed combated these heresies. Okay? Both of them. Which is why when you look in the creed. You will see more about the Son of God. There is more lengthy statements about who Christ is than anything else. Partly because of the heresies, but partly because which of the Holy Trinity came and dwelt among us and was revealed to us, right? So the Creed was developed. Now, let's take a look at the Creed. Page 19. <clears throat> We start with the Father. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Well, now that we know everything about the Father, right? (laughs) But we proclaim Him as that mystery of the Trinity who is in all things, has created all things, heaven, earth, physical, non-physical, visible, invisible, and so on. Now we shift to Christ, the Son of God. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. There's that sentence that was combating anyone who believed Christ was not fully God, fully divine. Very God of very God. God of God, light of light, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, the three yet one, Okay, <laughs> by whom all things were made, we have that in the Genesis account, through Christ, the Word of God, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. And what do we do at that point? We genuflect for two reasons, the coming down aspect and our submission to He who came down. Both reasons we genuflect at that point. Who came for us and for our salvation, even stating the genuine point of His coming for us. And was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man, we rise as Christ dwells among us. And was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick, the living, and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Thoughts about all of that in Jesus Christ? Anything stick out to you? Any questions? There's a lot there. It's the bulk of the creed. Alright. Alright. We move on to the Holy Spirit. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord, the Giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father. And here's the statement of equality of the three. Who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified who spake by the prophets. It was the Holy Spirit inspiring the prophets. Then we have something interesting. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this. So so far in the Creed, we have the Trinity. But there's something else that's about to be expressed as a part of the whole. The church. We'll get back to that in just a second. And I believe in one holy Catholic, that's universal church, and apostolic church, it is the faith of the apostles. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, that's the point in, to the church and into Christ. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. I would put to you that as much as the creed expresses the faith of the, Holy, of the church in its understanding of the Holy Trinity... The reason that the church is in this, are we not invited by Christ being filled with the Holy Spirit into the life of the Holy Trinity? Invited into that incredible oneness? Therefore, the entire reality of God, the entire reality of our faith, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the church that has been invited into them. Isn't that beautiful? To share in the life of God Himself. And it's right there in the Trinity every time we say it. We proclaim that oneness.